Psalm 119, a famous, famous ode to the law, is the longest psalm by far. It has 176 verses. Lest you are filled with dread, I do not intend to preach the whole thing. Our text today is Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. The rest we will save, Lord willing, for some future occasions. But a few words about the whole psalm are in order, I think. And so I want to note a couple things before we look at the first stanza. It's another acrostic or alphabetic psalm. We've seen this device before. But here it works differently. Here, every line of each eight-verse stanza begins with the same Hebrew letter. So verses 1 through 8 all begin with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which is our A. And verses 9 through 16 all begin with the Hebrew letter Bet, which is our B. And since the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, that's 22 times 8. That's why there's 176 verses. It's not that the psalmist just got tired or he went on too long. It's 22 times 8. And this is lost in English translation, but it's, as we've seen before, it's to aid memorization. It does a number of things. It aids our memorization, or at least would aid the memorization of a Hebrew reader. And it serves for the poet as a device to uncover the subject from A to Z. And even more profoundly, it's a way of saying that all human letters, and thus all human words, have their origin or their ground in the word or the law or the speech of God. The, uh, the rabbis, the ancient rabbis, felt that the Torah existed eternally in God. And that the Torah was the world's deepest reality. And thus, they saw the law as the sort of inner mystery, the inner structure of all human speech. There's a profound sense in which we can agree with that as Christians. Because in the beginning was the Word. And because that's true, human beings are made in God's image and we have this magnificent gift, this gift of speech. And a psalm like this reminds us that all human speech is to be shaped and structured and molded and directed and controlled by the law or the word or the eternal speech of God. And so for the psalmist, the, the order of the divine mind is intricately embodied in the law, beautifully embodied, and that beauty is to be re- reproduced, is to shine forth in we who are human speakers, made in the image of the word of God. And this is why, or at least it gets at why, one produces a psalm of this magnitude. A psalm with a single subject, passionately engaged, the majesty of the law of God. Now, if you've read through Psalm 119, and I'm sure many of you have, you'll notice there's a good bit of repetition in the text. But it's, it's really, the repetition is not monotony. It's like subtle variations on a theme. 
The text uses eight keywords. There's eight lines in each stanza, and there's eight keywords. And these, these words are, depending on your English translation, the words are word, words like word, law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, ordinances, promise. But there's eight. And occasionally, rarely, a related word is substituted in just for some variation. Nearly every line in the psalm has one of these words. And every stanza in the psalm has between six and eight of those eight keywords. So, with that, we're just going to take a look at the first stanza today. And I'm going to make two points, blessedness and prayer. So we're in Psalm 119, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. The psalm starts with a benediction, pronouncing a blessing. You might remember that the whole Psalter, the whole book of Psalms, begins this way. Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. And Psalm 119 can, in fact, be viewed as an extended commentary on Psalm 1. And we've seen this before as well in the Psalms, but blessedness here means happiness or joy, contentment, or in more modern parlance, it means full human flourishing. Full human flourishing. Blessedness, then, is a summary of all the benefits of the covenant. They're all gathered up in this word, blessed. And so it's very important when you come to a text like this, at the outset, we read this psalm in Jesus Christ. Right? We read the psalm as those who have already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We know the chief blessing of a blessed people is the forgiveness of our sins. And that this blessing is secured for us in Christ. And it's secured because he's the only one who was utterly innocent, who kept all the statutes of the law. This is why Jesus' obedient life is so important. You can almost sense its importance if you read slowly and reverently through Psalm 119. Throughout his obedient life, his law-upholding life, and his atoning death, you and I who have broken the covenant now stand under the blessing of God, freely justified through his obedience. And yet, as those accepted, beloved, this psalm still guides us. It still guides us in the Christian life. It still guides us in our sanctification. In a sense, we could put it this way, that we are always seeking what we already have in Christ. That's a summary of the whole Christian life. It's seeking what you already have in Jesus Christ. We have this blessedness. It's secure, and yet we're called to seek it. We cannot come to the full possession of it without some measure of obedience. And the shape of that obedience 
is inscribed in the law. The shape of our gratitude is thus inscribed in the law. And so, as the children of God in Jesus Christ, blessed in Him, we still confess, we still confess, blessed are those whose ways are blameless. Sound, blameless means you're having basic integrity. Those who, the text says, walk according to the law or the Torah of the Lord. Torah is helpful here. It's an interesting word. It, 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 we, we always translate it as law. It includes the idea of teaching, but it also includes the idea of direction, of being a way. The Torah itself is a kind of way or a kind of guide. It includes the first five books of the Bible, but for Christians, it means all of Holy Scripture. And so blessedness comes to those who walk according to the Torah. It's somewhat startling, I think, perhaps, for moderns, this connection of blessedness, happiness, fulfillment, and the law. I mean, God's law is viewed in our day, much like law in general, as a hindrance, as an obstacle to fulfillment, as sort of the antithesis to happiness. And so... We live in a culture where all authenticity, all genuine freedom is thought of as coming by refusing the the yoke of the law. It's repudiating the law that leads to liberty. It's profaning the holy, which is seen as the highest expression of liberty. And ironically, we end up with a society which is characterized on the one hand by personal lawlessness and on the other hand by reams of social and political law and legislation. It's the worst of both worlds. See, when a a people won't govern themselves, they will be governed, usually by sprawling bureaucratic states which is why atheistic societies are, ironically, totalitarian. So on the the vision of Holy Scripture, the Christian vision, liberty is freedom from sin. And it's freedom for virtue. There are many corrosive things in our culture, but few are as bad as the utterly debased notions of liberty and freedom that just pollute our whole public discourse. Liberty is freedom from sin, freedom for virtue. And thus God's law is not a noose. Liberty is lawful, and the law is called the law of perfect freedom. Did you hear that in that James 1 reading this morning? The law is the law of perfect freedom. Liberty. The law is fatherly instruction for the blessedness, your blessedness, your full flowering as God's children. And so, autonomy, the word autonomy means self-law, meaning the assertion of the sovereign, unfettered self. That is, in fact, slavery. 
Jesus says, whoever sins is a slave of sin. Sin is lawlessness. So, part of what Psalm 119 does is it fights against this corrosive, debased notion of liberty that has seeped into the very bones of our culture. And it says there's another way to blessedness, to happiness. And that's further described in verse 2 as blessedness belongs to those who keep his statutes or his testimonies. This word reminds us, this word testimonies reminds us the law is a living witness. The law was placed in the ark and the ark was called the ark of the testimony. Because the law witnesses against our disobedience and it witnesses for us when we keep it. But you can't, you can't keep what you don't have. And so that's why we need this text, right, to, to stimulate us to a robust engagement with the law, to hide the word of God in our hearts. As the psalmist will later say, you cannot keep what you do not have. Notice verse 2, look at the second half of it. It's very important. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with their whole heart. As much as the psalmist loves and, and reveres the law, his piety, his, his devotion doesn't terminate on the book. He reads through the book because it's God himself that he's seeking. And he's seeking this God passionately with his whole heart. And so law-keeping, it turns out, is a form of God-seeking. Right? Law-keeping is valuable only in as much as it's a form of desiring and yearning for the being of the triune God himself. We engage the law because we want to see the face of the author. And God has said that it is there that he's chosen to reveal himself. This is the deepest rationale for why you should be a lover of Holy Scripture. Because you want to see the face of God and taste his goodness. And he has said, this is the way there. Scripture is not the end. But it is a barometer. It's a barometer of our relationship with God. I've cited many times the 4th century biblical scholar Jerome who says, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ. So there is a sense in which we can say the level of one's passion for God is measured by one's passion for his holy law. It's a form of self-deception for us to think that we love God and are completely indifferent to Holy Scripture. Because that God, the eloquent, eloquent God, the speaking God, has said, you can hear me, find me, have communion with me there. So it's very important to see in Psalm 119 throughout, that it's God who's being sought and worshipped and praised and called out to and panted after. It's God who's teaching and saving and delivering according to his word. There are many, many examples of this throughout the 176 verses of the psalm. Let me give you two quick ones that will suffice. One is verse 55. In the night, Lord, I remember your name that I may keep your law. 
Verse 58 says, I have sought your face with my whole heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. God himself is our great end. Our chief highest end. Our blessedness. And our reward. As he says to Abraham, I am your blessedness and your reward. And he's bound your blessedness, your happiness, your obtaining your end for which you were created as a human being. He's bound that to his law. And so the second point that I want to make, that's blessedness. The second point here is prayer. In verse 4, God's addressed directly for the first time. He is... Addressed or mentioned from this point forward in every single line of the psalm. And thus, and this is so obvious that it can be missed, I suppose, Psalm 119 is a prayer. And as such, it's a wonderful school for teaching you and I how to pray. However, I want to make an even more basic point than that. And my, my very basic point is this. Prayer is the very atmosphere in which the study of God's law must occur. Like prayer is the precondition. It's the posture of disciples, of people who place themselves under the precepts which the text says God has given or commanded that we fully obey. Properly done, opening your Bible and reverently placing yourself in a listening posture underneath the authority of the text is to already be praying. Prayer pervades study. Otherwise, study becomes a form of idolatry. And so the word is to be received prayerfully and reflected on prayerfully and responded to prayerfully. We might say that based on Psalm 119, study is prayer, And prayer is study. I mean, what is Psalm 119? Is it a prayer that happens to also be a study on the law of God? Or is it a study on the law of God which also happens to be a prayer? We need not choose. So, one of the most difficult things for Christians to do, all of us, across the span of our lives, is to pray well. And to have some sense of shape and coherence and vigor and satisfaction in our prayer lives. We all struggle with this on different levels. But one thing that helps here is pray through the word of Holy Scripture. Pray through Psalm 119. Pray with and through the text along with the psalmist. See, we are not left, thankfully, to our own resources and creativity when it comes to prayer. God doesn't just throw you back on your own internal resources and say, do the best you can. He leaves you a book full of prayers. And this is a divinely inspired prayer. And if we read it right, that is to pray with the psalmist. So I encourage you in that manner. But I want to know next, what provokes The prayer here is what I am calling the gap. The gap. 
So I'll explain what this means. Notice uh, the psalmist doesn't mention himself before until verse 5. Before that, he speaks of the supreme happiness, the blessedness of those, not himself, but those who walk according to the law, who fully obey God's precepts. Seeing, if you will, he's seeing this blessedness held out before us, and he knows that he falls woefully short of it. That is the gap. The gap between the promised blessedness of obedience and our reality. Our falling short of the glory of God. Think of the law as an intrusion of the glory of God into this order of things. It's a reflection, a transcript of the holy, infinite God's character to which you must and indeed are destined to be conformed. But nevertheless, that revelation creates a gap between the picture of human glory and obedience and our reality. And out of that gap, prayer, here quite desperate prayer arises. The higher the blessedness held out in front of us, the deeper the desperation. And so in verse 5, the psalmist Size. Oh. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Our ways are not yet the ways of the blameless. We're fickle. Our fickleness does not answer to the steadfastness of God's precepts. And thus we begin with a cry. A cry for a steadfastness which is yet future to us. Oh. Sighing is the beginning of prayer. Sighing that's born out of this gap. Because prayer is a yearning for transformation. It's a yearning for glory. It's a yearning for a blessedness which is ours in Christ and is still held out in front of us. And in the meantime, because we're all sinners, we know shame. The shame of disobedience. Even as Adam and Eve knew shame in the garden, we cry out for steadfastness. And then if you look at verse 6, it says, we will not be put to shame. He's looking forward to a time when he won't be put to shame when he reads the law. Now, we read the law and we still know shame. We pray for the then when we can unashamedly gaze upon and consider all the commandments of God with a conscience that doesn't accuse us. We're in this dynamic and there's a gap. And in that gap, we pray. This desperation, this is the poverty of spirit which drives prayer. And it may very well be the absence of this tension. Now, a person may not feel this tension. There are people who feel this tension acutely because of the way they're wired. And there are people who don't feel it very much at all. But it's not particularly relevant. The tension exists. The gap exists. It's a lot like guilt. 
A person may feel no personal guilt and yet be legally very guilty. There is a distance between the majestic glory and the ethic to which that glorious God calls us to conform when he thunders down his law and our state. And if we don't sense that distance, that will account for a good bit of our prayerlessness. Will it not? Where there's not a yearning, a sighing, a sense of need, a a vision of glory for, for which... We yearn and from which we fall short. What does Paul say in Romans 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory. If you come to the evening service, you know that glory is an eschatological word. We've fallen short of this blessedness and this glory that is held out in front of us. And so... This is needed or will be prayerless. Prayerless people see neither themselves nor God's holy summons in his law with clarity. And thus there's no sighing. You know, if you read Psalm 119, even to the end of this very long psalm, and and in, in the psalm there are numerous affirmations that most of us, I think, would be hesitant to make where the psalmist tells God how much he's obeyed him and how deep his commitment is and how unswerving his loyalty is. He speaks of his obedience and his love for the law. Even through this all, this deep spirit of poverty remains. The very last verse of this 176-verse poem is this. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commandments. We are seeking God with our whole hearts in his law. But it's very important to see this. Our seeking depends on his seeking us because we're continually straying. For all of our affirmations and all of our resolutions and all the psalmist resolutions, we are still straying and we need to be sought. And without his seeking us, all of our seeking is in vain. So this is prayer which echoes Augustine's famous plea centuries later where Augustine said, O Lord, grant what you command and command what you will. Meaning, O Lord, you have commanded us to keep your law. Grant what you've commanded. So prayer then cannot be reduced to techniques. It's not to say that some techniques may not be helpful, but prayer is about praying to the God who raises the dead, who calls into being that which doesn't exist. Right? Prayer comes from the hearts of people who realize they fall short of a glory into which they need to be transformed. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And he knows that he's a child of God. He knows God is faithful. He knows that God will move us from the now of shame to the then of blessedness. Right? That's another simple description of the Christian life. Yes, it's true. Our shame is forgiven. We are righteous in Christ. But the psalmist is talking about your experience, your emotional, psychological experience. He wants you to be able to stare at all the commandments of God in their full extent 
utterly without shame. And in deep happiness because God has enabled you to obey. So as part of his prayer, knowing that God's going to move him forward to blessedness, he praises. He says in verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart. As, notice that as, as I learn of your righteous laws. He's committed to the study, to learning. He, doesn't, he knows he doesn't know it all. So he has to push himself, if you will, into the text. But he's, he's not learning just for learning's sake, right? He's, he's seeking to rectify his, his fickle obedience. And so on the way to blessedness, he does one more thing that I want to look at here. He resolves to praise God. I will praise you. So resolutions, the, the repeated summoning of our wills, are to be a large part of praying as we read the law. In that sighing, in that gap, we, we have to resolve to close the gap. It's true In one sense, all of our lives are long strings of broken resolutions. But don't be disheartened and give up. You still stand as a child of the covenant, under the grace of God, under the blessedness of Jesus Christ. Keep resolving. Another resolution comes in verse 8. I will obey your decrees. He's determined. He doesn't want to be like that creature um, in the in the New Testament lesson, whom James describes, who who looks at the law and then walks away and forgets who he is, he will be. He resolves in prayer that he'll be a doer. And after his resolu- resolutions, and in verse eight, he prays. Somewhat surprisingly, even here in the first stanza, do not utterly forsake me. That desperation remains, beloved, in prayer. Do not utterly forsake me. God could just justly forsake us all if he were to evaluate us strictly on our performance. Now, in Jesus Christ, you have the promise that God will not forsake you. But don't let the promise make you presumptuous. So... Praying this way, praying do not utterly forsake me, is one of the ways that God uses to preserve his saints, to not forsake you. The the most secure saints of all are saints who are sighing, do not utterly forsake me. And so, notice this, resolution in prayer, I will praise you, I will obey you. It has to be coupled with this deep, Dependence, this vivid sense of the gap, do not utterly forsake me. So there's a, right, resolutions, there are people who are good at making resolutions. Resolutions without dependence are self-righteous. But dependence without resolution is sloth. It's this kind of prayer, then, which the law of God evokes, which it calls forth. And so I want to charge you. Now, I'm not going to come back to Psalm 19 next week or even in the foreseeable future, but I hope to come back to the whole psalm at some point. But I want to charge you to read it and to pray and to cry out and to study with the psalmist. 
If you were to engage or memorize just one verse a day, you'd get through the whole psalm twice in a year. Imagine a year from now having the whole prayer hidden in your heart. The whole of this cry interiorized. There's a great, rich blessedness stretched out in front of you. Cleave to the law of the Lord and to the Lord of the law in the pursuit of it. Amen.